Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Leading the Line podcast. Today I'm joined by Kieran Tame, I'm co-author of The Making of the Women's World Cup, a book that tells some of the most interesting stories from uh, the history of the tournament. We also talk about more generally this summer's tournament in France, the growth of women's football and what the future may hold. I'll be back at the end of the interview, so for now, let's just get straight to it. Kieran, thank you very much for joining me. We've just come, uh, first of all, before we talk about Women's Football the World Cup, could you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me, Chris. Really appreciate it and uh, really appreciate your interest. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm Kieran Tavum. I'm a, I'm a freelance women's football writer. I'm currently doing a little bit of work with FIFA. And, and for that reason, I was uh, at the FIFA Women's World Cup most recently in France for five weeks. It felt like five months by the end of it, but incredible opportunity and just before that I did the Women's World Cup trophy tour as well so I had the the privilege of being able to visit a large number of the 24 nations that have qualified or had qualified for the tournament to to try and promote the tournament and get a little bit in, of insight into their footballing culture so a busy six months but uh, absolutely uh, incredible opportunity and uh, an opportunity to to really see how uh, how women's football is is kind of developing in different countries in different areas. Yeah, so it's, as you say, it's, it's really is developing at the moment. Um, the World Cup itself, I was there, as you said, you were there. Um, you're also doing the trophy tour. So what was your feelings of the Women's World Cup? Maybe first of all, from a, a covenant perspective before, after, before during and, and even after, and then as a fan, because at the end of the day, the reason why we're both having this conversation is we're, we're fans too. So what, what was your feelings as, a, as the event as a whole? Yeah, I mean, talking from a, from a journalist perspective first, I think we we kind of looked at, this Women's World Cup as being the biggest ever. And it's not necessarily in terms of uh, the number of tickets sold or the number of people viewing. I think they're separate uh, entities. I think with the number of people that viewed the competition, I think it was over a billion broadcast views, which I think is probably the biggest in history. But um, I think the biggest in terms of the interest, I think there was more hype. There was more coverage that was going into this competition. This was my third World Cup in terms of having followed the games since probably about 2009 2010 and for me this this world cup received unprecedented coverage before during and after uh, i think that you know the women's game has continued to grow immensely in the time that i've followed it there's more investment and with more investment the quality of the product on the field is better and when the quality of the product on the field is better that attracts more broadcasters and we certainly saw that with this competition there were in the press tribune when I was at the games, there were, well, a significant number of media. We're talking, you know, huge numbers, uh, over 100 in some cases for certain games and certainly games like the United States v France in the quarterfinal and the the final itself and the semifinals. They they were hugely well attended by by media uh, across the board. And you know, to be part of that was was really something special because I can tell you that the sort of games I used to go to, you know, a few years ago, maybe a little bit longer than a few years ago, but um, you know, there were sometimes only a few of us that were were attending games and covering them. But this this felt different. Um, I think it felt different going into the competition. It felt different during it, and I think we're seeing afterwards that that coverage has has continued. I think what will determine how successful it was in terms of its legacy is. How does that transfer to the domestic game? What sort of attendances are we going to see when the FA Women's Super League kicks off? What attendances are we going to see in the Scottish Premier League? Um, and I reference them because obviously you're based up there. But um, I think that's going to be uh, the key to, to whether this World Cup has been hugely successful. It has been successful, of course, but my my hope is that it, it sort of 
it's not just a five-week thing or a four-week thing that we see the development of the competition translate into the development of the domestic game as well. Yeah, I think it's a shared hope, um, not just between me and you, but anybody who's been involved in women's football over the last few years, um, the scenario you paint is one that is is very familiar to me as well. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about the legacy a little bit later on, uh, I've got no doubt about that, but let, let's get on to the book, uh, The Making of the Women's World Cup. Uh, I've obviously read it before we, we recorded this uh, recording, and my, probably my first question is, what incentivised you and, and Jeff, who you co-wrote it with, to decide to bring some of the stories that have helped kind of shape the tournament ahead of the summer? Yeah, I'm I'm not going to deny, and I'm always very honest about how the book came about. Um, we were essentially given this opportunity by the publisher, Little Brown, um, at the beginning of last year. They approached, they actually approached Anna Kessel, uh, the the sports, the women's sport editor for the Telegraph initially, and Anna brought me on board to to co-write the book. But after initial meetings, Anna felt that it wasn't a project for her for personal reasons. And I respected that. And as far as I was concerned, it was her who had initially made the the contract, the contact and uh, and the relationship with the publisher. And as far as I was concerned, that was it. It was done. But they reached out to me and asked if it was something that I would be willing to take on. I was working full time. I was freelancing. Writing a book on my own was not something that I really felt I could do. So I brought Jeff on board because Jeff has covered the women's game for 10 years plus and, and has an incredible knowledge and contact list that's United States based. And, and there's no getting away from the fact that the US have won four women's World Cups. So they have played a big part in the history, of course, for with the 2019 victory. But um, in terms of the, the book itself, the publisher didn't really know what they wanted. They they kind of gave Jeff and I the license to shape it how we wanted. So we kind of got our heads together and and we felt that telling some of the, the sort of the main stories from previous tournaments would be the best way to give an insight to to new fans, but also maybe give some little learnings to those more established fans that, that maybe things they didn't know about. So we we went with kind of stories that we felt comfortable covering and that we would be able to get some insight from players and coaches. And, and that's kind of how it came about. You know, it was slightly fortuitous for both of us but in the terms of the theme of the book we were kind of allowed to run with it how we wanted and thankfully the publisher was on board with us yeah I, th- I think that comes across because you, you're right that this, the stories you tell it is very much a case of uh, multiple narratives throughout and I think that really helps uh, with people who maybe didn't know a lot about the women's game going into it and are maybe now curious after the World Cup as well um, let's start with the start though uh, the book as I said tells a number of stories uh, about the history of women's football and I think for a lot of people, though, that the pre-1991 years uh, will be a bit of a revelation, particularly, and I'm going to try not to stumble over this, the first FIFA World Championship for women for the M&M's Cup. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that one? Yeah, so that was the first official Women's World Cup that took place in 1991 in China. And I, I've spoken about this a few times, and Jeff wrote this chapter, so he's probably in a better position to speak about it than I am. But this was really FIFA's kind of way of of trying to introduce women's football to the world without having to to almost align it with the men's World Cup. The reason that they called it the first FIFA Women's World Champion or the first FIFA World Championship for women's football for the M&M's Cup, even I stumble over it as well. Um, they, I think there was probably an element of we're not sure how this is going to go. And if it's a complete embarrassment, we don't want in any way for it to be aligned to the Men's World Cup by calling it the FIFA Women's World Cup. If we give it a name that essentially people can't remember without reading it or without imprinting it in their memories, 
it's something that people will forget about very easily. So they didn't want to call it the FIFA Women's World Cup initially because they didn't want that brand association with the Men's World Cup. Uh, there were also some slightly different rules in there as well in that the matches were only 80 minutes long. So it, 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 they did really try and completely separate it from the men's game um, because quite simply they were not sure how it was going to go. But thankfully, the the quality of, of the games and the quality of players on show enabled them to, to produce a, a good tournament uh, that was well attended. Admittedly, a lot of the, comp- the tickets that were, were handed out were complimentary, but there were good attendances in China for the 91 World Cup. And, and what that allowed was for the following tournaments to be officially known as the FIFA Women's World Cup. And, and it's also, you know, believed that the success of the 91 tournament was the reason that we we saw the introduction of women's football in the 1996 Atlanta Olympics as well. So 91 was hugely significant, but if it hadn't gone as well as it did, it might well be that we weren't that we weren't talking about a women's World Cup straight after in in 1995. Yeah, and, and this is maybe a bit of an offshoot, but you obviously mentioned that the slightly different rules in the the 80 minute games, and one of the things that cropped up at the start of the World Cup this this summer, not so much towards the end, was the the notion about changing the size of pitch and the size of goals. Um, do you think that that's something that's going to get looked back on again, or do you think maybe the, the improved quality of playing it, I think you referenced it at the very start, is something that means that maybe that debate will go back into the shadows a little bit for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I think it will. I think it will go into the shadows. One of the other things as well with that World Cup is that they were debating on the size of the ball as well. Obviously, they use a size five. They weren't sure whether they were going to use something smaller. But I think you're right. We've, we've seen conversations that have occurred over the last few months relating to size of pitches and, and in particular size of goals. I think, to be honest with you, we saw the standard of the goalkeeping at this World Cup, and I think those conversations were very quickly put to bed. I didn't see very many goalkeeping errors at all. All I saw was top-class goalkeepers who have reaped the benefits of being in full-time professional environments and actually having proper goalkeeping coaches. And that's all that's been missing over the years. You know, there are some really talented goalkeepers over the years and I will name Pauline Cope as one of them who was the England goalkeeper in the 90s. Pauline played amateur status throughout her whole career because that's what the game was in England and she never had proper coaching. She never got the time on the field that the players get now and Pauline could have been absolutely world-class if she'd had that opportunity. Goalkeepers now get that much like their outfield players do as well and what I saw in France was world-class goalkeeping from the likes of Sari van Wienendal, Hedvig Lindau, Christiane Endler of Chile. I saw them put in performances that really put that conversation to bed that we need, that we need smaller goals because they were absolutely phenomenal. So something I hope that we don't maybe have to continue talking about for too much longer. You can always get me to nod along in agreement anytime you're talking about the, the goalkeeping at this World Cup because I, I agree with you. I thought it was excellent. Not even, you've named three names there, but even keepers like Laura Giuliani, Lee Alexander actually for Scotland had a really good tournament as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Hopefully this is something that, that kind of regresses a little bit as an idea. But we're talking about women's football. Uh, we're talking after the Women's World Cup and you can't talk about women's football without talking about the USA now. In the book, as you've said already, Jeff's uh, American-based, so there is a there is some some chapters about the USA, obviously, and they're covered quite extensively. I, I'm going to try and get you to narrow it down a little bit, though. Do you, do you think there's a particular era? Do you think that really defined the the American style? Maybe is the best word for it at the moment. Yeah, the, the American style. 
Um, oh, that's a really good question. I think in terms of where the Americans are now, I think 1999 is always going to be the year that defined women's soccer in the United States. Those players were hugely, hugely popular. Uh, they played a style that completely overwhelmed and overawed their their opposition. Um, and I think there's a, an interesting kind of tale in, in one of Jeff's chapters about them going to their first game at Giant Stadium in New York and they were on the team bus and, and they were stuck in traffic and the players were kind of wondering what was going on, why was there all this traffic? And it wasn't until they got nearer the stadium that they realised that that traffic was because of them, because of their opening game, which was hugely, you know, hugely well attended. And throughout that tournament, the big attendances continued right through to the final in the Rose Bowl when they had over 90,000 supporters there. And I think that team really defined what the United States is all about heart desire ruthlessness which has continued through to the team of 2019 you know it took them a little while after that 99 world cup they didn't win a world cup until 2015 but the united states have always been known for that winning mentality and i think that stems from really big characters like Mirham, brandy chastain julie Fowdy, Ju- um michelle akers all players that played in that 99 world cup they they set the standard they set the benchmark for what is the US the US team now um, and that is the team that the teams have always been trying to emulate this team now is making its own its own legacy and its own pathway but 99 was a defining moment for the United States without question it's interesting that yeah you, you mentioned characters there it'd be remiss of us not to talk about Megan Rapinoe possibly the you know definitely now the most the most famous women footballer in the world um What's what's your what's been your take about the the cause that she's been championing and the way that it's um, definitely stirred up some debate uh, pretty much everywhere at the moment? Yeah, it's, I mean, I find it frustrating in in certain ways because you know Megan's been doing this for a number of years. You know, this isn't something that she's just all of a sudden won a women's World Cup in 2019 and thought I'm gonna I'm gonna start talking and using my platform you know she's been using her platform for for a number of years and it's only because of a few viral social media videos that i don't think paint her in in the light that i know that people are all of a sudden saying that you know she's she's uh she's arrogant or she's you know uh, not a good example to to young girls or whatever it might be Megan Rapinoe has been one of the most recognized women's footballers in the United States for a number of years, not just in the United States, but in the world. And there are a number of uh, new supporters to the women's game or people who are new to the women's game. And and we want those people. Of course we do. But some of those are not familiar with her history and not familiar with her background. And she has been speaking about important issues for a number of years. This is not new to her. Um, But obviously the platform that she's got now is even bigger than it has been in the past. And you know, she will get more attention. And unfortunately, not all of that will be positive. But I know Megan on a personal level. I've known her for six years. I've interviewed her multiple times. And I can tell you that what some people are portraying her as is absolutely not true. Uh, She is not arrogant. She is not this spoiled brat that people seem to want to paint her as. She is a model pro who has done an awful lot for the women's game in the United States and further afield and will continue to do so. So look, uh, the, the the topics that she talks about are hugely important and I hope she continues to do that um, but this notion that 
she's arrogant and uh, and is not a good example is is completely false. So it's been um, I've had to bite my tongue a little bit. I've spoken a little bit out on social media, but um, I've tended to keep a lot of my views to myself because uh, it would probably upset a few people. No, and, and you're right. This, this isn't a it's not necessarily a new thing in terms of what the, the, the causes that Megan champions. And as you say, she's been doing it for a number of years. I think it's just the way we are just now, especially after the success of the World Cup, it's just she's got a much bigger platform and with that attracts a much wider range of, of demographic in terms of opinions and things like that. But let, let's let's move away from the States a little bit and let's talk about maybe maybe the second most famous uh, women footballer in the world. Up until the World Cup, she made, made a very good argument. She's the most famous. It's Marta. Um, she became the record goal scorer at a World Cup. You can debate whether women's or men's should be the same, but 17 goals at a World Cup is a phenomenal legacy. Um, she obviously spoke very passionately as well um, after Brazil eliminated from the tournament. How significant do you think she's been as a figure growing the game over the last decade, 15 years? Oh, massive. Massive, absolutely, no doubt about it. I think whatever we think about Marta and, and some of the awards that she's won that maybe have been won on reputation rather than performance, Marta will go down as probably the greatest ever player to play the women's game. And, and we're talking about you know individuals that have played the game like Mia Hamm, like Michelle Akers, like Kelly Smith and many, many others as well. And I think Marta will probably be go down as the greatest of all time, certainly for the time being anyway. Um, her her role uh, in that Brazil team, and, and we're talking about a Brazil team that at times hasn't been particularly well supported by the Federation. I say at times, most of the time, hasn't been very well supported by the Federation. And despite that, she has at times carried that team through to some stages of tournaments that really they they didn't write have the right to be there because they probably didn't have the talent that other teams did but Marta was the one that could always turn a game she was always the player that would take responsibility and 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 carry a team forward and you know she got helped them get to the final of of the tournament in 2007 they lost to Germany in that final but she was named player of the tournament that year and it's it's rare that you will see a player of the tournament coming from a team that hasn't won the competition. We obviously saw Megan Rapinoe won it this time around. I think from memory, Carly Lloyd won it in 2015. Hamari Sawa won it in 2011. They all were all winners. I think Marta was the was the you know the winner of the Golden Ball despite being on the on the losing side. So her legacy is huge, and and she's not done yet. You know she continues to to do amazing things. Sadly, we didn't see the best of her in France because she was carrying an injury. She obviously missed the first two games, but you know, she's won multiple awards. She's done things on the field that other players can't do. And and I think if you speak to most people, they will tell you that she has been hugely influential for women's football, not just in South America, but across the world. And um, the time that she hangs up her boots will be, uh, will be a sad time for everyone. But um, I think she's still got a few years left in her. Yeah, so do I. And I think you're you're right to point out that at this World Cup she was hampered a little bit by her injury. And I would take to think some people who have maybe heard of Marta but never really seen her use that as the impression to form of her because she has been such a standout for such a long period of time. I mean, and it's one of the chapters in the book, which is why I wanted to talk about it as well because I think it's a really good introduction to Marta as a as a player and as a person. So I, I think that is a really good point to kind of go for. Um, 
one of, one of my other favourite chapters in the book, and probably the one that was most emotive, is the last one, and it's to do with Japan's World Cup triumph from 2011. Um, it was just a few months after the 2011 Fukushima disaster, and I think it was one of, the, one of the things that's been talked about a lot is the power of women's football, and I think this chapter really demonstrated it. First of all, what were your thoughts on that one, and has there been any other stories that emerged from the World Cup that have had that similar kind of unifying impact? Yes, um, I wrote that one, and that, to be honest, was probably the first chapter that I wanted to to kind of nail down. I, I don't think you can write a book on the making of the Women's World Cup and not include, as you say, the most emotive story in the history of the competition. Um, for for those players to pick themselves up three months after such a disaster that completely devastated their country, to overcome the odds in beating a really strong United States team in that final and to, to win the whole tournament, I, I don't think there's a story that, that comes close to it, if you want me to be honest. I think there have been some amazing stories in the Women's World Cup over the years, and we've seen you know, teams that have over, have had to overcome serious barriers and hurdles to be able to participate in a competition. And we saw a few in this World Cup, you know, Chile playing in their first Women's World Cup, South Africa, Jamaica. You know, these teams aren't necessarily always given the support by their federations that they need. Some of them are better than others. South Africa, I know, have some amazing people working um, behind the scenes. And, and I'm sure that Jamaica and Chile do too. But you know, these these players overcome incredible hurdles to be able to just take to the pitch and to be able to play at a World Cup. And there's plenty of amazing stories. But for Japan, for them to be able to do what they did, for them to be able to regroup and carry the weight of a nation on their shoulders, because that's essentially what they did. They had a nation on its knees from the devastation of what had happened at home. And all they wanted to do was to go to that World Cup and try and make their country smile. And they they went one better than that. They didn't just make them smile. They went and won the whole competition. And, you know, that's the first Asian team, male or female, to win a World Cup. And to be able to do that so soon after such a devastating event was, I, I'm not sure we'll see anything like that again. Certainly not in my lifetime. I hope we do. Um, I hope it doesn't come after such sad circumstances. But I would love to see more um, stories where, where teams have overcome the odds to, to win major competitions. But um, that one was really important that we had that in there and, and it was really important that we got player perspective as well and, and that's why we got Saki Kumagai the current Japan captain to to give us some insight because um, I don't think it would have been right for us to tell that story without someone actually being there so we were we're really lucky and grateful to get Saki and, and to get her insight about that that tournament. Yeah and I think that's one of the one of the standout things for me as, as I was going through the chapters was there was always that that bit of player insight We've talked about the USA, we've talked about Japan, they've obviously won the, the last three tournaments uh, between them, but at this World Cup we saw a little bit of a sea change um, of the eight quarter finalists, seven came from Europe. Now traditionally there's been Germany, Norway and Sweden, I've, I've always been there or thereabouts. Do you think we're starting to see maybe that, that shift that, that we see in the men's game, and I'm sure me and you don't like using the comparison, but sometimes it's, it's good to have, where Europe becomes the powerhouse of the game, or... Do you think that's still a good way off at the moment? Well, we saw Europe certainly mount a charge, but ultimately it was still the United States that still came out on top. So we are definitely seeing the UEFA nations getting stronger and closing that gap, but they're still not quite there when it comes to actually overtaking the United States. In terms of a broader way of looking at it, absolutely. You know, the 
I think what we saw at this World Cup was a reflection of what we're seeing on the domestic front in Europe. We're seeing a lot of money being invested into into a lot of big clubs. A lot of the players that played in those quarterfinals play for those big clubs. The Netherlands being a prime example, getting through to the final. The vast majority of those players play in England or in Germany or in, in the big leagues, in France as well. So I think what we're seeing is is reflective of what's going on in the domestic game. We're seeing big clubs in Europe invest in their women's teams and they are getting better as a result of that. The federations are responding by investing as well. We're seeing the KMVB in the Netherlands. They're, as I said, a great example. The FA in England are, are investing significant amounts of money now. Um, so, yes, I think we are seeing a shift. I think we are going to see European teams dominate for for a little while until other confederations and other teams start to catch up but still got to try and overtake that United States team and for the last couple of World Cups we haven't seen teams be able to do that. Yeah and, and USA are I think they showed in this tournament as much as any other before that they are still very much the benchmark but your, your points around the domestic scene I, I totally agree with and I think this probably leads us on to kind of the post-World Cup era. So we, we touched on it at the start. Uh, legacy has been very much the buzzword, I think, in any conversation I've had about uh, women's football over the last couple of months, especially in Scotland, where, if I'm being honest, we're, we're a bit further behind than, than down, down in England. In terms of building the success of France 2019, what do you think women's football can do? And let, let's start with an example as a, as a jump-off point in, the, in this instance, which is the, the announcement in the WSL of the two games getting played at the Etihad and Stamford Bridge. Um, what's your take on that? And what's your take on the fact that the Chelsea-Tottenham game is free as well? Yeah, I mean, I think what the clubs are doing is smart. They're obviously trying to use the momentum that's been generated by the World Cup. So trying to do things a little bit differently and try and offer some some things that maybe haven't done in the past is a good idea. I do like the idea that we have games at the Etihad and, and Stamford Bridge I'm not going to deny it. We've seen games played in big stadiums before and they can be virtually empty. I've been to the Emirates twice to watch Arsenal. Granted, it was back in 2012, I think the last one was, and there was about 5,500 people there, which is a good attendance for the WSL, but not in a 60,000-seat stadium. Um, what do I think about the tickets being given free? I, I don't necessarily agree with it, if I'm being honest. Uh, and that's not a, an, an indictment on Chelsea. Uh, I think they've done what they think is the best way to get a full stadium. And clearly it's worked because the, the the tickets are all sold out. The problem is, is that if on that day when it comes to the fixture and it's raining outside or if the weather's not great or someone decides that actually, do you know what? I don't fancy it. They haven't lost out. You know, they haven't had to pay for a ticket. They haven't had to part with any money. So it's a very easy decision to say, I, I'm not losing out by not going. I think also... Um, I think price reflects the the products that you're paying for. I'm not going to be able to walk into um, a, a hair salon, for example. I have no hair, so I don't walk into hair salon. <laughs> but an individual can't walk into a hair salon and have a free haircut. An individual can't go into a restaurant and, and get a free meal. They're going to have to pay something for both. And my belief is that you pay what the value of the product is on the field. Now, my suggestion would be for these clubs, and it's just my opinion, if you want to see what the value of your of your product is, maybe do a pay what you want. You know, see, give supporters the opportunity to pay what they feel 
the value of the product is some people might pay a pound some people might pay five pounds some people might pay 20 pounds but get an idea of what the average is that people feel is women's football is worth and then price your tickets accordingly that that would be my advice um but i do like the fact we've got games at, at big stadiums um i'd like to see how they perform before i give an opinion as to whether i'd see it, like to see it more regularly uh, i do think that the size of the stadium isn't necessarily always the important factor. It's the location. Now, in some cases, clubs are paying are playing nowhere near where their fan base is. So Reading Women, for example, play in Wickham. Arsenal play in Boreham Wood. Yeovil Town, who obviously have been unfortunately relegated down to the third division of, of women's football, play in Dorchester. You know, some of these some of these grounds are nowhere near where fans are based and they don't necessarily want to travel to go and watch their clubs. So bring the product, bring the, the game to the fans. And I'm confident that they will turn up in big numbers. I think your point about locale is, a, is spot on. It's a, a challenge. It's, it's not as um, severe in Scotland because we're a bit smaller for a start. But there is a, there's a certainly instances where some of the clubs are maybe not as, as close as they could be. But to be fair, there are clubs that are, are making moves to address that as well. Um, we're recording just now, just for context, during the Women's Under-19 European Championships. Um, I'm doing some coverage of the game just as a, as a freelance. But I wanted to get your take on media coverage because one of the things that I was talking about with one of, the, with of my colleagues yesterday was um, the attendance was really good, but there was over 1,200 uh, at the game, which is a, a massive improvement in Scottish football. But the, the media coverage was still the same faces, and I wanted to get your take on it from a... An English perspective, because in Scotland, I think we have have one opinion. I think maybe down south, you have a slightly more involved uh, set of circumstances at the moment. Yeah, I think over the years, I've definitely seen press boxes fill up a lot more. Um, and I think what we're seeing down here is mainstream outlets starting to to give the game a little bit more space in their in their respective pages. So we've seen. The Telegraph, for example, now have a dedicated women's football writer in Katie Wyatt. The Guardian have a dedicated women's football writer in Susie Rack. So Katie and Susie will tend to be at most games. The BBC have individuals like Joe Curry and Tom Gary who are based in different parts of the country. So you'll tend to find them a lot of games as well. But I still think that the vast majority of, of media coverage in, in the UK as a whole is dominated by independent media. You know, people like Rich Laverty at Our Game magazine is an independent journalist, does a bit of freelance for for, for for mainstream media, but largely does a lot of stuff off his own back. I'm the same. Over the years, I, I ran my own outlet for, for five and a half years and did it off my own back as an independent member of the media. Um, I think we're going to see more. No doubt about it. The Times, Molly Hudson is another one who's who's doing a lot of great work. So we do have a maybe maybe a bit more of an evolved uh, landscape down here. But, you know, I saw at the World Cup, I, I covered the England-Scotland game and I covered Scotland against Argentina as well. You know, you guys have certainly have some good journalists. Alan Campbell is, is phenomenal. I think he does a great job and, and has been championing uh, women's football in Scotland for years. Uh, and I hope we see more. Um, but yes, I think we're probably a little bit ahead of you guys down south. But I hope that with the continued interest and success of the Scotland women's national team, that, that we'll see more people uh, turn up to games up your up your way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think we have seen that with the attendances at the, the European Under-19 so far. I think it's been really good as a, as a jump off point um, in terms of building momentum. Um, 
I suppose probably the last thing I always do whenever I speak to somebody about about women's football at the moment is what what would you say to somebody who is on the fence? So somebody's listened to this and they they've listened to the interview and obviously this has been amazing. But um, if they're still sitting on the fence about women's football, what would be your your selling point to them? Okay. Go to a game, give it a chance. Don't compare it to the men's game. Allow it to be its own entity. Don't look at it as something that you have to compare because we're we're realistic in the women's game. Those of us that work in the women's game, even those that play, you know, the players themselves, they know that the standard and the game is not at the level of the men's game. But there's a combination of things for that reason. Number one is the the women's game is playing catch up in terms of it being a professional sport it's only been professional in england for a couple of years so players are only now starting to get the facilities and the investment that the men's game has had for countless number of years and the second thing is science you know women are not as fast or as strong as men so the game is not going to be as fast or as athletic or as powerful but judge it for what it is judge it for the players on the field as they are and not compare it to anyone else. And you will find that they are incredibly skillful. They are incredibly athletic and they are incredibly dedicated to the sport and they produce a really entertaining event for any supporter that goes through the turnstiles or anyone that's watching on TV. Um, I'd also always recommend the first port of call. And it was one of the first things that I did was subscribe to She Kicks magazine, which is run by, uh, British journalist Jennifer O'Neill. She's been running that magazine for pretty much 20 years, or she's been covering the game for 20 years. I learned about the game by reading her magazine and gaining an insight from from her. And I think those are the things I would do if you're a new fan. Those are the things I would do to try and gain an insight into the game, to to not judge it, comparing it to other sports and other the male game. Give it a chance for what it is. Give it a chance on its own merit, and then cast your judgments i think that's a very good way to to end the interview as it stands but before you go kieran obviously um the book the making of the women's world cup is, is still out just now is there anything else going on that uh, you'd like to share with everybody uh <laughs> i am about to uh i'm about to become um potentially available for work but we're still figuring that one out um but no i i think my honestly my uh my only message would be please do if you haven't read it or haven't purchased it the making of the women's world cup is available on amazon um jeff and i i can assure you we're not going to get rich off of the back of it we did this purely for love and not for the money um we're not looking for for people to invest in it so that we can get rich off the back of it what we want is for people to enjoy it people to learn about the women's game and for people to get excited about the women's game so um if you want to go out and buy it uh please do because uh, we'd be grateful for, for any person that picks it up. And there'll be a link to it in the, the description for this podcast and on the Leading Line website um, once it goes up online. And Kieran, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Chris. Really appreciate it. Once again, a massive thank you to Kieran for joining me for the very first edition of the Leading the Line podcast. Um, it's great to have somebody show some faith, so much appreciated. Please go buy the book. The link will be in the bio um, for this particular podcast. Um, and we'll be back again soon with another, hopefully, really interesting interview. But for now, thanks very much. Go subscribe, bang out those five-star reviews, and follow me on Twitter at MFPTasty. And if you've got somebody you think would like to get involved, by all means, please get in touch. Catch you later.